Welcome back, everyone. One of our most requested guests is known for her straightforward approach, honesty, and dedication to the sport. Not only has Bo Hill won over $760,000 in her career on great horses such as KR Silver Spur, Famous Bugs, Hip E, Buck Wild, Jitterbugs, and more, but alongside her husband, Jeff Switzer, they have bred some of the most talented horses in our industry to tune of $1.7 million in earnings, including horses such as Famous Silk Panties, Flinging Roses, All Fame No Bull, Bobby Jean, and many, many more. This conversation covers a little bit of everything that has to do with barrel racing, and we are thrilled to finally be able to share this with you. If you haven't already, don't forget to use code MONEYBARREL15 with our partners at BarrelRacing.com to get you a great discount to their website. BarrelRacing.com brings you instruction from some of the most respected voices in our industry, including world champion Jordan Briggs, futurity champion Andre Quelo, NFR qualifiers Ivy Sabins, Carly Servi, Shane Wimberly, and more. Train smarter, not harder this year. Let BarrelRacing.com help you out. Before we get started, if you like what we're doing at The Money Barrel, be sure to subscribe to The Money Barrel at Patreon.com or download the Patreon app on your phone. Subscribing on Patreon is a great way to support the show. By subscribing, you'll gain access to extended episodes with most of our Season 2 guests, bonus episodes with guests like Haley Kinzel, Lisa Lockhart, and Andrea Busby, and early access to episodes. For just $5, the cost of a single exhibition, you'll get hours of content and help the Money Barrel continue to grow. We are so grateful to all of our supporters on Patreon. Without further delay, Bo, I think it's your turn. This is the Money Barrel. Really excited this morning to have our next guest on. It's taken about two years for us to to pin down a time to do this. But this morning, we're getting to talk to Bo Hill, so thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. How's it going down in Texas? You guys have been there for, what, a little over a year now? We have. I came in July last year and kind of got a rough start, but it's getting better. How do you like it down there? We love it. It's barrel racing country, and and it's good for the mayor business, and... um, it's it's been good. It's a lot better than Kansas. We we survived those Kansas winters for thirty years, and um, it's made it a little easier. It doesn't mean I'm going to win anymore, but it's definitely made it easier. Yeah, there's there's probably quite a few days in the winter that riding was not an option in Kansas. It, it really was wasn't an option with any fun. Very true. Very true. Well, we have so many things to talk about, but I want to dive in. You know, to start, just in your background, um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and how you got into horses. Well, I was actually ranch raised. I grew up over by Walsenburg. Um, went to a little school in La Vida as a real young, and then grammar school at Walsenburg, and was ranch raised. And then my folks moved to Kansas and got my first decent horse. I think we give $75 for him. And I went to Prairie Circuit Finals on him and placed at Houston and Cheyenne. He was just a really good little great horse, not even papered, that me and my dad trained together. I think I was maybe 12 when I went to my first circuit finals and just got into training barrel horses for the necessity to win. We, I come from kind of a poor family and couldn't afford to go buy a horse, even though you could buy a winner back then for Seventy five hundred, we'd give seventy five dollars for mine, and I rode a lot of lot of horses under a thousand dollars. 
That's amazing. Where did you guys find this horse? And were your parents in horses before that, just with ranching? Or how did they get into the barrel racing side of things? Just with ranching. Like, we just grew up ranching and and riding, just working ranch horses. And I don't really know how barrel racing come about. I guess every little girl sees it and wants to do it. But that's how I just had to had to run barrels on the ranch horses but when we moved to kansas my dad was still taking care of cattle but um got into barrel racing and and didn't really go to many junior rodeos or anything but high school rodeos and then i got my permit i think i was 12 or 13 and went to my circuit finals then so it just it just happened pretty young of course back then you could do it young now there's stipulations yeah, that's amazing, because um, I, I was looking through some old pictures, and I saw that you had rodeoed, and I actually don't think I even realized that you had rodeoed at one point, um, but I didn't realize that you were just a teenager when, when that happened. Yeah, I think I think my first circuit finals was 76, and then I won the Great Lakes circuit in 80, 81, um, which seems like a long time ago, but um, <laughs> then and I rodeoed oh quite a bit. I went to the tour finals in the nineties um, again and just kind of dabbled with it. I mean, uh, off and on. I I didn't ever really love the trail, and especially I've been married for thirty years. My husband been finals in the bronc riding a couple times, and I don't know rodeoing. Rodeoing's great for young single people, but. It's hard on people that have things. I always tell those rodeo girls, don't take anything rodeo and you can't afford to lose. Your truck, your trailer, your husband, your hat, whatever. <laughs> Be able to lose or don't take it with you. That's, that's probably really solid advice. There's so many sacrifices other people make for the person rodeoing. And to me, the highs weren't as high as the lows were low. Like, I... I hated losing so bad that the and I expected to win, and so it wasn't real rewarding later on. As a kid and in my twenties, there was nothing any funner. Like we we had fun. I don't know that they have fun like we have had then. Like I'm pretty glad social media wasn't around when I did the big end of my screwing up. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, tell us about some of those rodeo. How did you get into the Great Lakes area from from Kansas? Is that just like the neighboring circuit? Well, it was, and um, we didn't, we really, my folks, both working parents, couldn't afford to haul me. My dad put an ad back then in the WPRA News that I needed a traveling partner and would go in any region. And a couple from Illinois answered that ad. Um, Janice Burden was the lady's name and Leroy. And they kind of took me in and I moved up there when I was 13 for the summers. And they, because I only have, you can get a learner's permit in Kansas to and from work, a farm permit when you're 13 and 14 to drive, but you have to be with an adult. And so I had to get somebody that could drive. And so that they answered that newspaper ad and they took me in for several summers. They were a great couple and they raised several different kids. They never had kids of their own. And there was a couple of bull riders there and a bronc rider that they kind of took in and helped us all. That's crazy. It just goes to show you, you know, nowadays girls are on Facebook, you know, 
posting, looking for drivers and all that type of stuff. And, you know, used to be put an ad in the paper, find a traveling partner yeah. and move. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, and I had to have somebody that was older um, that had a rig. I had a little two horse bumper pull and a half ton pickup, I think. And so, yeah, that's, that's how I got into the Great Lakes circuit. So were horses and training just always what you wanted to do? Did you ever venture away from them at all? Or, you know, did it just start as a kid and it continue? What I wanted to do, it's just kind of happened. It just, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to knit. And so it was either train horses or um, train horses. And it just, (laughs) just kind of what I did. Um, It found me. I didn't find it. When did the training aspect come in? I know you said you and your dad started your your first good horse, but did when did you start training for others and, you know, starting the young horse type thing? Young, like 13, 14. Okay. Just just always did. Did didn't buy other horses, just always and I, I tell people even today, barrel racing is not that hard. If you have enough bananas, a monkey can train a barrel horse. It's just over and over and over. Put them in the right spot and keep doing it. There's no, there's no real secret. Just show them. There is no, there is no real secret. The secret to winning is ride a better horse. But um, I I don't think I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not on speed dial with NASA. Like it's not rocket science to train a barrel horse. Sometimes I think barrel racers make it a little more complicated than it actually is i agree some days i'm like it 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 shouldn't be that hard we, we just need to turn three yeah. three directions and not slow them down on the way home and maybe we'll exactly. be a little faster yeah and and the better the horse the more you win and it's getting the industry has changed a lot from i don't know um i guess i've been doing it I don't know, I got a picture at Fort Smith with no roof on it. I don't know what year that was. But obviously I've been doing it since the 70s. And the horse, the pedigree has changed. And horses have gotten easier to train because they're bred to do what we're doing with them. But it's still just repetition, putting them in the right place and going around and around the pattern. If you could have done something besides horses, what do you think that would have been? I have no idea. I I've never even really thought. I I laugh. I put it in a bio years ago. And they did those little books. And I was a part time pastry chef, which is not true at all. But you could be anything you wanted to be, like everybody is on Facebook or whatever they want to be. You could you could do it back then in the media guide when they ask you what you what you did. I said oh, I'm a part time pastry chef, which I was not. But a pastry chef or a pawn shop owner. Yeah, that my folks were got in the pond business um, when we moved to Kansas. Well, later we were in high school, but um, my husband and I opened a pawn shop in Dodge City. It was a good business for a long time, um, but we were ready to do something besides be behind those bars. We stood it thirty years, and um, it was good. Like it was good income, and and it kept us in the horse business. The horse business has gotten good the last few years but the horse business is always going to be volatile yeah it, it just is like i think it'll always be that way i bet the pawn shop had some interesting days it, it did there was 
there was all walks of life that came through the pawn shop. There were some good people. And then there were some people that just didn't manage well, and they brought their stereo in first of the week and picked it up the end of the week, and, and they did it repeatedly for years. For as long as you had it. Um, for as long as you had it. Yeah, we hardly ever saw a stranger in there. We'd been there so long, and it was the same people. I love that because, I mean, nowadays, I wonder if everybody realizes that your brand is the pawn shop brand, which I think is so cool. Um, yeah, not a lot do. Which I love that. Like, that's that's where it came from. So, yeah, tell us about okay. your start in the fraternity world. Um, obviously, you said you've been doing this since the 70s, and the fraternity world has greatly changed since then. But tell us about like the start of that in our industry you know i don't i don't really remember the very beginning but i don't even know who probably probably vera hammonds uh got us i mean educated on the four-year-old fraternity program and i had always ridden pretty young horses and i think i think it was probably her that educated us on getting into the races for four-year-olds and even back then they paid better than rodeo and um that's how we just started riding young horses and entering the fraternities what were some of the bigger fraternities that you aimed at back then fort smith's been around forever and they had the texas fraternity at grand prairie for years and years and they had one in the fall uh, and the BFA's been around for a long time, too. But, you know, I, I don't remember. The, the BFA, Fort Smith, Grand Prairie was one of the first ones. They had one at Phyllis's place in Oklahoma for years and years. I don't remember the name of it. Um, you forget things when you get old, I guess. I love but. seeing pictures of those old Texas fraternities that were outdoors and, like, in the mud. And now... Yeah. I, I tried. I think I'm probably the last one that tried to put on an outdoor fraternity. And it lasted three years before I was like, nope, we're not even going to risk it. Indoors we go. No, and nowadays, they ain't going to go to an outdoor fraternity and run a four-year-old that's worth 100000 in the mud. Exactly. Especially at a standard pattern. No, thank you. Just not going to do it. It's crazy, but and even I wouldn't do it. The value of the horse, and I think that's something you learn with age, is the older you get, the more respect you have for a winner. As a mm -hmm. kid and a young trainer... You just thought you were going to have a winner every year. Just, oh yeah, that's just what you did. You just had winners. And I, I think you, with age, you get way more respect for those outstanding horses. And there's so many good horses around now. Used to, there was 30 good horses. Now there's 100 or 150 good horses. And there's 20 outstanding horses. Yeah. Yeah, if that first good one, it's like, oh, this this is easy, and then you realize, no, it's not. It's it's not that yeah, easy to get this you good. You do just think oh, every year, and I always say I haven't kept a horse in years and years. I haven't ever really kept one. I always sell, and I tell people when I ride the best horse I think I'm ever going to ride, that sucker's AD Quine Senior at my house. But I just haven't rode the best horse I'm ever going to ride. So tell us about that, like the first good or first big-time fraternity horse that you had? 
probably the first, I mean, I rode some good, I've been so fortunate to ride some good horses over the years, but I rode a big black horse, we called him Cosby. He is slipping was his name, that one second at Fort Smith in middle 90s, I think 96, 95 or 6, that was just an outstanding gilding. Um, but there, I mean, there's been a lot of good horses, but that horse probably stood out. He was big, he was black, he stayed hooked. They, they buried him in Dodge City just two or three years ago and a little 10-year-old boy had been riding him. Oh, that's um, awesome. Just a, just a great horse. He was probably my first outstanding barrel horse. How was he bred? He was by Dash for Perks and out of an own daughter of Ladybug's Moon. Okay. And that, that leads to, that kind of got us in the breeding business. I'm I'm not even in the breeding business today. My husband is. If it wasn't for Jeff Switzer, I would still be going to the racetrack and buying what I like or going to breeders. But he loves the mares, the stallions, the collecting, the semen freezing, the halter breaking. He does all that. I, I wish people probably knew more. He does about... I don't know. He probably does three quarters of what goes on, and I do a quarter. I ride a few horses, and um, I'll help with the mares if I have to, but <laughs> that's his deal. And he's good at it, and he loves it. And so he went and bought that horse's mother, and then I rode, I think I made the finals at Fort Smith on five or six full siblings to that horse. Oh, wow. And then we kept them for brood mares, and that's kind of how the breeding program started. And Lanita, it's purse now, it was Powers then. She she had old Miss Wahini Bug for Mary Watkins. And Jeff got to breed her, and he bred her to Dash to Fame and kept the foal. And that's where Famous Bugs came in in 2003. And he knew from the very beginning he wanted to buy that horse from Mary Watkins, and that was going to be his stallion. And it still is today. That's and it's amazing. His, it's his stallion. Uh, I can put him on the walker, walk by and pet him, but he does. I rode him as a four-year-old and took him to probably 12 or 13 events. But other than that, he exercises him. He rides him. He does everything with him, and he's been the base of our program. That's so cool. It sounds like we need to ask Jeff to, to join us on the podcast, too. Hear his Absolutely. thoughts. Yeah, I just ride a few horses and... and he tells me from time to time, if you can't train that one, you should quit. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he loves his brood mares and stallion, and and he just, he, he's obsessed with it. You wouldn't think an old bronc rider would be that into the breeding end of the industry, but he loves it. No, it's usually the wife that drags the husband in, like, come on, this, you know, we, we can do this. Let's breed these foals, and... Yeah, and he's just off. Let's buy another broodmare. Well, what do you think about this broodmare? My like, damn, Jeff, I'm getting old. Oh, this is a great cross, and gets him another broodmare. But that, he he loves it. That's awesome. Is that when kind of the the impact and the focus on the maternal line started? You know, back from that very it, it, first good horse. It is based based on that one gilding that a horse trader bought through the Clovis horse sale and brought to us. And um, he ended up being a, a great horse, and he went and bought his mother. And I don't even remember. He would know, but that mare might have 
had a foal on her side and we were buying the foal and they said just take the mare and the foal both and when you wean bring the mare back and then he ended up buying them both and that was kind of the the foundation of our breeding program we bred the outside studs for he bought a stud or two that he thought might work young and didn't fall in love and then when famous bugs was born he said that's that's our guy and so and he still is he still is. I think he's, well, he was pulled in 2003, so he's 19. Yeah, and he's so cool. I just love him and his foals and the fact that it, anybody it, can win on them. It's him. been fun riding them. It's seeing kids win on them and old people win on them and paternity trainers win on them. It's cool to see all the different walks, you know, the different barrel racers that can win on them. It's fun to watch. Do you lean towards a certain style or type of pedigree when you're running or when you were, you know, training and riding and buying from the racetrack? What did you look for when you were looking for fraternity horses for yourself? Well, early on, you just pick something you like the looks of and the way it hit the ground and, and the way it moved. You really didn't know about their mind in the 70s and 80s. You know, you just you just pick things you had eye appeal to you. But then I got to ride in the dash for perks. And, of course, that, that he is slipping was out of a great daughter of Ladybug's Moon. And then you started looking at pedigrees in the 80s, early 90s, really got to looking at them. And you'd buy something at the racetrack and think, man, this sucker's hard-headed. And you'd remember, that doesn't fit me. And I always said, don't blame the pedigree of a horse on the stupidity of a human. I mean, because there's certain pedigrees that don't fit me, but somebody else can win on. Um, and I'll see somebody else winning on it. Strength and Six is one that I know can win. They're easy to look at. They're athletic. They don't fit me. And every now and then, I'll get beat by two or three of them. I think, I'm going to try me one of those. Well, turns out it doesn't work. Um, it's just not for me, but it doesn't mean it's a bad pedigree. It just doesn't fit me. And the same with Corona Cartel. I know that when I can read, but I tell people I'd rather join the cartel as ride one. <laughs> I've, I've tried two or three, and they just don't fit me. But they're athletic, good horses. So, I mean, I, th I think there's a lot of pedigrees that can win, but it takes a certain trainer to train them. And everybody likes something a little different. Breeding season is around the corner, and if you haven't picked your stallion yet or haven't sent the contract in for 2023, go look at the Colorado Classic Stallion Auction first. Over 190 stallions will have breedings up for grabs for this upcoming season. This is a great opportunity for the breeder to get a stud fee at a discount, all while supporting the Colorado Classic Futurity, Maturity, and Open 4D. Visit coloradoclassicstallions.com to view our auction and get registered and ready to bid. Bidding opens on January 1st. Mark your calendars for the 10th Annual Colorado Classic held in Montrose, Colorado, June 15th through the 17th, 2023. We paid out over 296000 in 2022, and this year is going to be even bigger. That's coloradoclassicstallions.com. What did you like? What, what did you have the most success on? Probably Dash for Perks. I rode yeah. a ton of Dash for Perks that were... They weren't all good, but I had some really good ones. And then switched over to Dash to Fame, and Jeff was buying 
three or four at a time on the backside of the racetrack. He would go to Sunland or Riodosa and come home with four of them, and I'd get them going and sell them, and he'd go buy four or five more. And we rode Dash to Pains when that craze, just before it hit, until they got unaffordable, and then Famous Bugs came along. Yeah. But I haven't rode anything but a Famous Bugs for probably 15 years. Oh, wow. I mean, why would you? Yeah. But that's... Yeah, I haven't branched out. You know, and I, I think that's important for a, a stallion owner, is you've got to believe in them, and you've got to ride them, and you've got to love them. And we do. You, you know, I've seen that a lot, you know, looking at prospective studs. You know, if you see stud owners not keeping any of the foals back or not proving them themselves, it's like, mm, how much faith do they have in them? Versus the programs that, like, we're all in. This is all we're riding. We're keeping them. We're proving them. And then it's like, okay, maybe if they have that much faith, I'll have faith in it, too. Absolutely. And, and we do. And they are easy to train. And I have, I just have no desire to venture off. And trust me, if I didn't like riding them, I would venture off because I am too old to fight the fight. I want a horse to really help me, but they do. And I don't care to venture off at all. Yeah, why, why fix what's not broken? Yeah, it, it, fits, it fits my program and they do. You don't have to ride them two hours before they start thinking you can get on them warm them up and they start thinking and they're easy to train and they're sound horses and um, they just they fit what what we do so tell us about some of the harder horses you've had because it's easy to talk about the good ones but what are some horses that may have taught you the most or you you didn't get along with so you sold and they went off to be winners tell us about some of those stories uh, well, that horse that Sarah Zaleski bought from me that won the Juvenile, and then Ivy Hurst got it, and it, it was a big winner, and it was a dash to fame, but out of a streak in six mare. I thought, man, I can train that. Well, turns out I couldn't. Um, I got him started, but he just was a knothead. He was just a little pisshead. He would rather do the wrong thing, and it, it didn't work out for me, but it was a winner. And there was a horse named uh, All Fame No Bull. Yeah. That was a dad name out of a... It was a full sibling to Famous Soap Panties. And I don't know if I can say this or not. We called him Buff for Big Ugly. <laughs> 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 he was kind of a long-headed, narrow bay. And he drove me crazy. He weaved in his stall and I think I won second maybe at the kinder slot race on him and I placed a little but by March I was over his stall weaving dumb ways and he was athletic and talented Pete Owen got him and won another 75 or 80,000 on him and he just dealt with him it drove me crazy and probably if I'd have been 25 again I'd have dealt with him but I've had so many easy-going winners that I'm a little spoiled. I just didn't want to fight the fight anymore. So there's, and Dashing Sparks was another one that I won the Congress on, and he won 80000 his four-year-old year before slot races. Uh, made the Tour Finals on him, went to the Circuit Finals on him, he won Dodge City. Um, good horse, but took a lot of riding. And he was a dash for perks out of a master hand daughter. And 
it was a lot of work. I don't know that I'd work that hard now that I did on him back then. Talented horse, but he took a lot of patience. Um, I, I wish I'd have kept track over the years of all the horses that I've rode. I have no idea. And somebody will bring one up. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember Kearney, and I remember Dash and Sparks, and and the llama and luther and misfortune's fool and dashing to roses i think there was four that i sold that one's hundred thousand dollar slot races and i can't even i know dashing to roses one and misfortune's fool and the black pearl um i can't even remember them and it was kind of a big deal but they just kind of you appreciate them when you have them and then you move on yeah, because you always have the next year and preparing for you the do, next but, one. And, and as a work trainer, that's what you think. There's a better one out there. Mm-hmm. I always like to ask that because, you know, I, I still think today there's people that, you know, oh, if, if Bo Hill's selling something, you know, well, maybe not you, but, you know, if somebody's selling something, something must be wrong with it. It must not be working. And, like, a lot of times it just needs to get into different hands. Long- to get a reputation that you'll sell the best you have as it does to get a reputation that you're a pretty good trainer. Yeah. Everybody thinks, well, if she's selling it, it ain't good enough. And I got lucky. I sold some young three-year-olds that were working really good. They went into good hands. They won slot races. And people thought, dang, she will sell the best she's got. And that was as good for business as anything I've ever done is get those horses in the right hands and people won more that year than I won on whatever I kept and they finally realized you know what seeing those horses win is is winning to me I don't necessarily have to stop the clock and get the check personally to be to be considered winning in my eyes yeah and it's probably more profitable that way too (laughs) oh absolutely absolutely I mean that that winning if you if you win fifty thousand you've probably spent thirty or thirty five doing it if you can do math at all by the time you enter and buy tires and wear out your vehicle and stalls and if you really keep track there's not a lot of profit it's getting better and especially with the incentive thing and those kind of things they're paying good but in the eighties and nineties if you won fifty or sixty thousand, you probably spent forty doing it. Right. Yeah. Bow, bow racers aren't real good at math. No. No, they are not. <laughs> it, it's love of the game and love of a good horse more than it is making money. Or yeah, I mean it's getting better, but for years and years it was kind of love of the game. Right. So tell us a little bit about your program now. Um, I know with the move to Texas, you you know are breeding so much more standing studs. Are you still keeping some to run back, or are you you know selling them as two and three year olds and kind of focusing on that type of thing? I try to start all. I try to start ten or twelve, and get them just loping through and sell them. But I try to keep myself a couple to enter on. Like I have two going to the juvenile, but. Jeff always says all girls know how, not too many know when. So when a buyer wants one is the time to sell. And so sometimes I end up not having anything. 
I broke my leg last year, so I sold everything. But I'm pretty sound this year. I don't think I'm going to pass a pre-purchase or anything, but I'm at least writing and entering. So uh, I have a couple, and I'd like to hold on to them till February, March, April, even. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be silly and turn down good money for a dream. Yeah, that's I mean that's smart, and I think that's last year we were talking. It was right after you broke your leg, and I think you had just sold everything, and you're like, nope, I don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> right. Um, and it wasn't even a horse. It, I think I failed the, the fireman's ladder safety course or something. But um, I I couldn't ride for a little while. And of course, everybody's had setbacks. But it just seemed like I'd gotten bucked off. I'd separated some ribs from my sternum oh, eight or ten months earlier. And then I broke my damn leg and just kind of had some bad luck there for a little bit. But um, I've been back riding since September last year. And... and started quite a few and I've sold down to two so do you start them yourself or do you send them off for a little bit because I know I've seen you riding you know 10 15 day colts you know before yeah Jeff has started them for years and years put 10 12 rides on them for me and he claims he's getting too old and too busy to do it and so we've used a couple of others I haven't had any luck sending them off I sent a couple off they come back girthy skinny starved not broke um so last i guess this spring we had a guy came here to the house and he put 15 or 20 rides on all the twos for me if they just get them where i can get on and they don't want to buck me off i can do the rest and so I had a guy named wilson schrock that lived right across the river and he came over every afternoon and put 15 rides on or 20 rides on two-year-olds and he's moved now and stopped riding colts so now i gotta find somebody else but i want somebody to come and do it in-house i would like for him to come just two or three weeks and and put some rides on my colts i want to feed them take care of them clean their stall that kind of thing but we kind of do need a colt starter but it's all kind of a lost trade hard to find somebody that's true especially like you said to avoid all the issues you listed like if you if you wanted to have a booked barn be a good cold starter you'd never have to worry about clients yeah and 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 it's just it's hard to find somebody that makes you happy and they'll do their job and we would we would want somebody to come here we'll feed them a meal every day and give them a place to live and just if they'd stay two or three weeks it mm-hmm. would be great but it's hard to find it's even hard to find to send one off and yeah they can do you more damage than good yeah and it's so important and to get a cult starter that knows the value of those horses and takes care of them like that and and will actually ride them it's hard and if they do you a bad job you've basically lost a well pedigreed horse it's hard to hard to get that first 30 days out of them so you want it done right so tell us a little bit how you approach the training side of things you know because a lot of trainers they don't they don't get their horses till they have 120 days on them till the spring of their three-year-old year like very rarely do the people fraternity um put those early rides you know, the most crucial 60, 90 days on them. Um, so, like, when do you try to get yours broke 
early or late in the year, then how do you approach that since you're the one doing all of it? You know, we try to get them broke in February, March at the latest. And soon as they're tame enough to step on, and even if I have to jip them around a little bit or put them in the round pen, just get the fresh off of them, I don't, they're, the famous bugs is aren't bronchi at all. And if I can just waller them around, I tell everybody I lope squabbles at first. They're not really circles. They're not really squares. They're squabbles. And I just get to herding them around and get them where I can lope circles and pull them around just like any other cult starter and get them to follow in my hand, moving off my foot. And I start them on the pattern before they're very broke. Like a lot of people like to wait till they have six months and really ride and I don't need all those buttons. Like I said earlier, it's, it's just repetition. Put them in the right spot. And if I can get them to the right spot, and if they'll follow my hands or get off my feet, I can put them in the right spot. And just 30 rides, I can start trotting around the barrels, and then I'll ride the lanes where they see some country and check the yearlings on them. And just like any other cult starter, I just start riding them and teach them a little something every day. I think it'd be kind of fun to send one off for six months and have it really handling before I started. But if they didn't do it like I like, I'd be worse off. So I just haven't I haven't gambled that yet. Just get them gentle enough where I can get on them and I just start doing what they do. That's pretty impressive. Really? Well, I mean, they're really not wild and, and it's just a patience deal of, I mean, that's all cult starters do is pull them around, trot them away, pull them around, move them off the rain. I mean, it's not, it's not like a, a gift of any kind, and good horses make it easy. It's not rocket science, like you said. It's not. Not rocket science. So when, and, and the best the horse, the easier it is. And I guess before we move on to the exhibitioning side, with you guys raising all your own foals, I saw a video um, that you you all put up on the Famous Bugs page about halter breaking your weanlings, and I thought that was really interesting since so many people, you know, like to handle them as they're little, and I mean, your weanlings were gigantic, like, those suckers were big. Um <laughs> So, I guess, yeah. tell us a little bit about, like, your philosophy, just raising foals and letting them be horses and, you know, kind of what you do to get them to the point you can ride them. Well, and, and that video, I don't know why that video went so viral. Macy James does our our social media for Famous Bugs, and she posted a few of those videos, and Helen's had 1.5 million views, and Lord, the critics have gone crazy about how we're lazy and where they should be haltered at second day old. Oh, Lord. Jeff doesn't like to pull on their little necks when they're young. Yeah. And, and it, like, we had a hundred and some mares here this winter. Started foaling in January. We flushed over a hundred embryos on the property. You know, we were crazy busy. Him and I have 150 head. We don't have time to halter break during breeding season. And he doesn't like to pull on their necks. And so when we get them up, he just, they've been in and out of those stocks because when we're rebreeding the mares, they follow their mama in there and we palpate and inseminate or whatever. And the baby's with their mom in the stocks, out of the stocks, back to the stall. And then we turn them out for three or four months, let them grow, and he gets them back up with their mom 
puts a halter on him, follows the mom two or three days, and then he they he teaches them to give the pressure, and then he's leading them in a week. Um, we just like them a little older, and we don't. I don't. I don't really like a real gentle horse. Like, I have a dog. I pet on my horses, but I don't want them so gentle that they don't move when I ask them to. So it just works for us. And there's, Lord knows, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. Uh, some people like to do it early and waller them and pet them and imprint them. Um, I, I hate to even admit, my three-year-olds have never had a blanket on them. Like, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, like my horses aren't just real tame. They ride and they're respectful and you can brush them and you can shoe them. Um, they're not going to paw you down, but you don't move at them real fast. Or you, if, if you put your foot in one, they're going to go somewhere. Um, the worst thing a horse can do to me when I kick it is go, <clears throat> that's against the rules. You better do something when I kick you. And it just seems like those babies are a little more aware of where you're at and a little more sensitive if you don't holler them so much when they're young. Yeah, makes sense. Strictly our program. There's many ways to do it, and it and we sell to mostly trainers. And I think probably Betty Barrel Racer would appreciate a little tamer horse, but that's not really our client for performance horses. They're usually going to horsemen. Yeah, and I think that's really, I mean, that's a really important point. You know, you you breed for a certain thing. You want them in certain people's hands. So if they don't fit, you know, the local rider that, you know, only wants to handle them once every once in a while and not have to worry about them, you know, running off if they kick too hard, then that's just not the right place for them to go. Exactly. And and our, our market typically, I mean, we'll, we'll sell to, I mean, then there's all different levels of horsemen, but most of our horses go on to performance horse people mm-hmm. that are, are, pretty horse savvy and most horse savvy people appreciate a respectful horse more so than a really tame horse not all never say all and never say never but most people most horsemen like a horse that will stay out of your space yeah for sure i mean they're soft on the end of the lead rope and they're respectful but most horsemen don't mind a horse that kind of watches you. They kind of, most horsemen appreciate that. Yeah, that's what they want. That's that's the goal and that's kind of the extra edge they need too to, to be that yeah, winner. to be competitive. And so, and, and he does it for, I guess, health reasons too. He doesn't like to pull on their little necks when they're little. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. I just started the whole breeding thing. I said I never would. And then here I never. am. Two two foals on the ground. Mary's brought bread back. Stead contracts bought for the next year. And it's like, all right, I guess I'm going to do this. So I find it so interesting to just see the different ways programs work. And, and there's so many different ways that are successful. Mm-hmm. There's different styles of training. Some barrel racers like them real behind the bridle. Some of them don't care. Some of them, and like I said earlier, certain pedigrees fit certain trainers. 
um, it there's just a lot of different ways and at the end of the day a winner's a winner This conversation continues for our Patreon members with more available insight from Bo on our industry, how she brings cults along to exhibitions, and more. Download the Patreon app and search The Money Barrel to join today for just $5 a month. You also get access to nine extra episodes with former guests. Big shout out to Bo for spending some time with us. Don't forget to register at coloradoclassicstallions.com and secure your chance to bid. The auction begins January 1st and is a great opportunity to find the perfect stallion to breed with your program. 2023 marks the 10th annual Colorado Classic held in Montrose, Colorado, June 15th through the 17th. All right, everyone, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.